uh, sell-out overflow room. Next year, we will ask for uh, a larger meeting space. But great to have all of you here. Uh, James Michael Smith, I'm Talbot Davis from Good Shepherd in Charlotte, and James Michael Smith, for five years, was our Director of Discipleship. And I can honestly say that uh, sort of under his tutelage, think about the age disparity, but under his tutelage, I have learned more about how to read scripture holistically, contextually, uh, wisely than I really ever had. So, so many of my, my messages and my approaches come from the understanding of the Bible that I got from my really good friend, James Michael Smith. And we, we figured that uh, by this morning, voting and all that stuff would be done. So he's not going to talk to us about uh, controversial issues in the Methodist Church or how to mobilize to get voting delegations. He's going to talk to us about something really important, like going on to perfection and what that means and what that does mean. Can I hear an amen? Amen. And so uh, before, would y'all just point your palms towards James Michael? We want to pray the Holy Spirit would richly anoint him for this occasion. Father, we thank you for, I just thank you for my friend, and I thank you for the good mind that you have given this man. And I thank you that he has surrendered his mind to your kingdom to be used wisely and well to build up the body for works of ministry. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for having me speak. I was here last year when Matt O'Reilly spoke, and so those are big shoes to fill. Uh, this, is a, this is actually a normal setting for me. Every Tuesday in Charlotte, I lead a Bible study at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, where the owner provides the food for free wow. to anybody who wants to come. If you're ever in Charlotte, Tuesday, 12 to 1 sharp, you're all invited. If you can't be there, my YouTube channel, we post a video from it each week, and we just read through the Bible with a bunch of business people and retired people and young people, and it's, it's pretty fun. So, um, let us go on to perfection. All of you that are ordained had to basically pledge to do that, right? Like, that's part of what you promised to do. I am pretty... Wesley is one of my spiritual heroes. I don't have very many spiritual heroes in, in church history. Everybody's got skeletons in their closet, and some are really ugly skeletons. Uh, Wesley's was, I mean, you know, he had some stuff, not the best marriage to speak of. But overall, it's surprisingly few skeletons in his closet. And typically when it comes to reading scripture and studying scripture, he is a very underrated expositor. You know, everybody thinks of John Calvin because he wrote all the commentaries. Other than Wesley just wrote the little notes. But it's because he was riding 250,000 miles on horseback. And so you don't have time to write as many commentaries when you're riding. He had actually a riding saddle. If you've ever been to his place in England, he, a saddle that he could read and write while he rode. It's pretty interesting. But um, he's not credited as a, as a systematic theologian to the degree he deserves. And thankfully, Tom Oden and others have been um, showing how, how false that understanding is. And I usually agree with Wesley on, on most things, theologically, exegetically, uh, except for going on to perfection. The, the passage that he took that from, and, and it's the book of Hebrews, and it's chapter 6, verse 1, I think that that's one of the places, one of the few places where Wesley missed it. Um, and I say that because the, the view, the biblical concept of Christian perfection is something that different Christians have grappled with and come out to about four different 
positions on it, perfection, sanctification, holiness, what all that means. And uh, the first book I ever wrote was, was based on one of the, the studies I did in seminary for uh, probably spent about six, seven years studying the issue of Christian perfection. And um, the book that I wrote, Cleansed and Abiding, a proposed view of Christian perfection, was an attempt to distill those four views very easily in, in lay-friendly language and then offer what I think is a fifth and a better synthesis of the strengths of each of those views that takes into account the most biblical data. And that's what, as as biblical theologians, we should always try to do, is make sense of the most scripture the best we can. And there'll be times where scripture has some tension. Well, when it comes to perfection, what I found, what what I argue in the book, is that Perfection is not the end of the Christian goal. Every time the word perfection is used, the Greek term teleos, the Hebrew term tamim, it's not the end goal that, that, that we all just kind of aim at, uh, at least not always. And it's also not this, like what Wesley thought of, a second blessing, this thing where you got normal Christians and then you pray real hard and you fast and you go to church and you take the Eucharist and you do these things And then one day, God does this second work, and then now you're a perfect Christian. And that's similar to the view that Wesley argued for. And he he learned a lot of that from from the Moravians and and the ones who would go on to become perfectionists in terms of their theology, where they they thought it was something that once you got it, you arrived, and you were perfect from then on, and it was a done deal. And so Wesley was drawn to that initially, if you know his story, but then he backed away from it and, and eventually ended up writing against it, but still maintained this view of Christian perfection. Well, the passage that he always cited in his belief that perfection was what we were to strive for and go on to was Hebrews 6.1. And in its context, and what I argue in the book, page 77, is that in its context, I don't think that's what this passage in Hebrews is, is urging us towards. I don't think Hebrews 6.1 is giving us something to strive for in terms of a moral state or an inward spiritual state wherein God does this thing in us and all of a sudden we're a different person. And the reason I say this is just because of reading it in context. I want you to hear it in its section. If you have your Bible, novel idea Bible at annual conference, um, <laughs> among evangelicals, right? You should all have your Bible and be waving it. No, if you have your Bible or your smart Bible, um, isn't it cool that you can literally have more knowledge than the entire history of the world had up until 50 years ago on your phone? That's just mind-boggling. I mean, that really is, that's a whole other sermon. Uh, Hebrews, and, and, and it starts in chapter 5, this section. And the author of Hebrews, he's writing to believers in Jesus who have come from the Jewish background. They have an elementary doctrine of what Judaism teaches, first century Judaism. They know about things like the resurrection from the dead. Now, they don't quite grasp the meaning of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but the concept of the resurrection of the dead is nothing new. They know about things like baptisms because they would undergo mikvah, where they'd be baptized and washed either daily or periodically, washed of their sins, uh, you know, laying on of hands. They know about these things, but they're being tempted. The author's writing to a group of people who are being tempted to go back to the Judaism from whence they came as the persecution in their culture 
gets ratcheted up because they're running up against a Greco-Roman culture that permits and thinks that Judaism is tolerable. They're always rebelling and the Jews that are causing trouble. If you're watching the 80 series on TV right now, it's as good as the last one was bad. The last, the Bible miniseries was horrible. The same makers, they made the AD series that's on TV. It's actually really good. It's like they took all the criticism in my head and fixed it. But, uh, <laughs> but in that, it really does show the interplay and the dynamics that the first century Jews were facing, particularly among Romans. Well, it got to the point where Judaism and the Greco-Roman Empire was tolerated, not celebrated, but tolerated. But as Christians started to become distanced from this thing called Judaism, started to being kicked out of the synagogues, told by their family, you're no longer part of Israel, you've gone after this pagan God, you've abandoned the faith, there started to be a pull to go back to that. On the flip side, there, if they, the further they were from that and the more distinctly Christian they became, the less protection that they had as recognized Jews from the Roman Empire. And this would come to its head in Revelation where they would actually experience full-blown persecution because of being kicked out of the synagogues. So that, the, the author's writing these people, and, and the author's, Hebrews is like a long sermon on the Old Testament and how Jesus has fulfilled it. And so there's, there's, this, there's this explanation in the first opening chapters of how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament things. And the author then says in verse 12 of chapter 5, he's going on about all of this stuff, and then he says, and I'm going to read from the venerated New Revised Standard Version, which I grew up on, but I know a lot of you are NIVers. Forgive me. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles, and it's really the words. I don't know why they went with oracles, but the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. That word mature is teleos, perfect. Solid food is for the perfect. And then he clarifies what that entails or what that perfection means. Those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. The, the part, whatever biblical perfection means, it involves discerning Basic things about good and evil. Being able to discern, being, being knowledgeable. And, and that's why the New Revised, I think, rightly, they went with mature, because that's one of the meanings of the word that's translated as it. Perfect, teleos. It means whole, complete, mature, integrity. It basically means something is what it should be for the purpose that it serves. So you could have a perfect bowl. It's perfectly round, it's smooth, it holds water, there's no cracks, there's no, you know, it's, it's a perfect bowl. Right? Can it do something that bowls can't do? No, but it's for what it is, it's perfect. And a lot of the idea of Christian perfection involves that concept of, of what we're called to be in Jesus, be that. And it doesn't matter, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't involve levels of spirituality and plateaus and these esoteric experiences. It's, it's being what Jesus made you to be. Complete integrity, wholeness. And he goes on to say, therefore, let us go on towards perfection. It literally, it's passive. It's a passive verb. Let us be carried on to perfection or the perfection or the maturity or the whatever you want to call it. Therefore, let us be carried on toward this thing, leaving behind the basic teaching. And that, again, is the, the, the words 
the words of Christ and not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are all Jewish beliefs. All of those things were basic Jewish beliefs. And the author's saying, you know, let, come on, we got more to do than just this. We've been spending these first four or five chapters explaining these things to you that you already know, but you guys should be teaching this stuff by now. Let's go on to the mature. Let's go on. In other words, this is not, and I think Wesley missed this, uh, and he doesn't miss much, but I think he missed this. This is not an exhortation for future ordained preachers to strive for this level of wisdom or spiritual plateau. This is a rhetorical point of the letter where he's saying, let's talk about some real things. Let's talk about the things, let's talk about the meat. Let's leave the milk. We've covered the milk. Let's go to the meat. And then he says, and, 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 and God willing, that is what we'll do. And then the rest of the letter, he starts talking about things like apostasy, like Jesus being the unique and the only, you know, son of God and the Messiah and all of the, I mean, the, if you've ever done a Bible study in church in Hebrews, there's some dense stuff in there. It's not an easy, it's not like, you know, Gospel of John. You don't just pick it up and read it and, you know, it, I mean, it is, there's some depth to Hebrews. There's rhetorical stuff going on. Listen to, uh, I want to read you what David De Silva in his commentary on Hebrews, in his socio-rhetorical commentary. It's the same series that Ben Weatherington's done a number of uh, volumes on. He says, the goal of this section is to cause the addressees to acquit themselves of the charge that they're not ready for mature instruction and to direct them forcefully toward behaviors in which they show themselves capable of taking on the responsibility of teaching what they have accepted as true, rather than requiring further persuasion and instruction in the certainty of the gospel. The author wants them to see themselves as teachers, of course, so that they will become active participants in the maintenance of the counter-definitions and values of the Christian culture. A community of teachers means a community of individual members reinforcing one another's hold on the minority culture's values, which is what Christianity was at the time, the minority culture, its values, and goals. Precisely the sort of community the author must shape if they are to persist in their journey against the current, and frequently the blasts, of the dominant culture and arrive at their divinely appointed goal. This passage advances the author's ideological agenda by presenting expectations that the audience should be living up to. And I love how De Silva says this. He says this is not the author of Hebrews giving a goal for them to aspire to someday before I die, I may reach it. It's, that's not what, now that may be, there may be something to that. And that's a discussion we could have because I talk about that in the book and the concept of is perfection a goal? Is it a destination? Is it something that's already happened? If so, how is it considered ongoing? And what, you know, how can you become more perfect? And those are discussions that I'll have I'm gladly with anybody. I don't have time to right now because we've got to get across the street. But the point of it is the author of Hebrews, the, let us go on to perfection, is saying, read the rest of this letter. Or listen to what we're about to talk about. Because we, we've covered that stuff already, the basic stuff. You've got the basics. You know Judaism 101. You may even know Messianic Judaism 101. We need to go on to the mature. Because you should already be there. 
That is what, to me, and I'm a lifelong Methodist. Grew up in the South Georgia Conference. My dad's pastor just got appointed to a new church. Uh, hopefully that'll be the one he finishes out his ministry there. And um, I've grown up in the Methodist church. I am as Methodist as they come. Even though I did go to Gordon-Conwell when I was there, it was still a Methodist seminary, as it still should be. That's another story entirely. But regardless, I'm as Methodist as they come. And in my own denomination, I look around and I see our shepherds are being presented with what the author of Hebrews talks about as something they should already have. And he's not even talking to just the teachers. He's talking to the Christians as, as, as an attainable a goal to strive towards. And my thoughts as I read that and as I look at the church and as I listen to the theological discussion or lack thereof, which we as Methodists, we need to own up to the fact our theological discussion is in the kiddie pool. We, there's some depth that we don't even bother exploring, either because we're too nice or it's too hard or because some of our seminaries don't even require that we really study that stuff. As long as we can quote or cite some historical theologians, make it sound like we've read some theology, then we're good. Instead of plumbing the depths of the text and actually getting into the exegetical meat, learning your Greek, learning your Hebrew, knowing how to uh, apply scripture in context to see the big picture, not mining the Bible for proof text on a particular issue, but seeing the full scope of God's revelation, seeing in scripture where tensions are presented. And on the issue of perfection, there's some tensions presented. There are some ideas where sometimes it talks about it's already something that is, it's, it's talked about as if it's the Christian life, the normal Christian life. And then in other places like this, it reads, if you're not careful, as if it's something that we strive towards. The problem with putting perfection as something that we strive towards is that it ends up doing one of two errors. It either makes us legalists or we just give too much leeway. In other words, if we think perfection is just something, oh, I'm, not, I'm going on to perfection, then it's kind of a good old boy way of saying, well, we all sin, we all mess up. Is it really that bad? I'm, I'm not at perfection yet. And it ends up excusing the things that Scripture blatantly flat out says, that's sinful. And not only is that sinful, that will exclude you from the kingdom of God if you continue in it. And there's a whole list of those things. And there are a lot more on that list than some people get fired up about. <laughs> the other side, the other error is it drives us to legalism. And it creates what it did in Wesley in his early years. And it creates that sense of, okay, we've got to go on to perfection. That means that we've got to really step it up. We need to pray more. We need to fast more. We need to take communion more. We need to give more, more social justice, but also more theological teaching, but also we got to feed people, and also we've got to do children's ministry. We've got to do more, 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 more. And it adds, and it puts on weight that Jesus wanted to take off. And so we're driven by this legalism that looks at, well, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there by golly. If it's the last thing we do, and all the emphasis is on us, we, me, striving. And what I talk about in the book, Cleansing and Abiding, is especially in 1 John, perfection, teleos, maturity, is not at all about us. Like zero about us, other than us submitting. Other than us just saying, God, I'm a wreck, and I'm a mess. Will you cleanse me? And the thing that he does in 1 John, he actually says it. I'm not a big memory verse person because verses didn't come into the Bible until like way after the printing press. 
I mean, no early Christian ever knew chapter something, verse something. They just knew the letter. That's why the biblical authors do that. They'll say, as it's written, da, 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 and they just expect that you know it and its surrounding context. The one memory verse that I do encourage people to remember is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from a little bit of our unrighteousness. No. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much is left? Does Jesus halfway clean things? No. The cleansed part comes at the confession. And then 1 John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us, and it's an ongoing action, the ongoing keeping us clean, it's like standing under a water fountain, cleanses us from unrighteousness. If we walk in the light... So the idea of teleos, the idea of perfection, and what I argue in the book for, this fifth way that I would propose is perfection is the normal birthright of every Christian, and it's not something that you wait long years after salvation. In fact, in Scripture, there's a good case to be made that it is the same thing as salvation from the other side of the coin, that when you confess your sin for the first time or the 500th time, God cleanses you. And all you have to do to remain in that cleansing is abide in him. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what this does is it, it gives us, one, it gives us this radical challenge. It, it, it lets us realize, as Wesley realized, that there is not one single verse in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that teaches that sin is inevitable or a natural part of the Christian's life. Not a single verse. None. There are three that people put forward, and I talk about those in the books. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Got to read the next couple of verses for that. But the point is that the, the idea of holiness, walking in perfection, and though Wesley didn't publicly use the term, he privately said, yeah, if you qualify it right, I could see that. Not committing sin. Just the idea that Christians can live and not commit sin blows people's minds or enrages them beyond belief. Wesley said, you mention it and people act like you're a mad dog. That's, that's vestiges of Luther and Augustine that we have sort of sideways imbibed from our reformed brothers and sisters, but that's not our heritage. Our heritage says that, that the work of salvation is not just forgiveness of past sins, but the cleansing of all present sin and then the ability to maintain that state of holiness through abiding in Jesus. So what does that look like? You know, I used to think, well, I can't go a day without sinning. And a friend of mine, he really challenged me. He said, can you go five minutes without sinning? And I said, yeah, yeah. If, if the Bible's true, then surely we could be, it should be able to, if, you know, I have reformed friends, they say, no, you can't go five minutes. I'm like, what kind of salvation is that? That, that, that you're saved, and what kind of sanctification is that? That you can't be made holy completely for five minutes? That's Gnosticism. That says that the body is sinful, and as long as we're in the body, we're tied to sin, and when, once we fly away, once we get out of this shell, then we'll be perfect. That's not biblical faith. That's Gnosticism. Jesus had a body every bit as fleshly as ours, and he was without sin. The idea, so, in other words, the idea that we should actually be able to live and not sin should not be a radical thought, 
especially for Methodists. I mean, it's in our DNA. There's all this talk about what's our Wesleyan heritage. Oh, it's commitment to social justice, commitment to making disciples. We don't even know what those two terms mean. We can't even agree on what making a disciple. What are you calling a disciple to? Come and, 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 and you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, or come on as long as Jesus is your homeboy. We don't even know, we can't even agree what discipleship is. But surely if there's anything Wesleyans should agree on, it's that whatever Jesus calls us to, it should involve freedom from sin. Breaking the chains that bind us. Romans 6 and Romans 8 life, not Romans 7 life, which is not a description of the ongoing Christian life, but is a rhetorical depiction of either the pagan Gentile or the Jewish moralist without the Spirit of God working within them. That should be our Wesleyan heritage, if anything, because that's what's uniquely Wesleyan. Holiness. That's why churches that branch off from Wesleyanism are called holiness churches. Now, some of them took it and ran. And they came into all these kinds of perfectionist doctrines which aren't biblical. And, and you get into Zinzendorf's view and his followers and their followers. And I talk about those in the book. That, that that's, that's not where you want to land. Like with anything, truth is usually somewhere in the middle. And you can take either direction too far. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us, and what I would say the biblical depiction of holiness and perfection is, Tom Oden had a great description of it in his big, if you've read his systematic theology volumes, in his one on life in the spirit, I think it's all one volume now, uh, he calls it sustained radical responsiveness to grace. I love that definition. Because what Tom does is he rightly shows that it's not about us being holy and creating another set of lists to do and don't do and what we can watch and what we can't watch and who we can talk to. and what He realizes, no, it's just... It's, it's a response to God's grace. But God's grace is empowering, not erasing. It does erase, but it then empowers. And he also adds that word at the beginning, Odin does radical response. Because that's, that describes, if anything, Wesley and the early Methodists. Radical. There was a radicalness that frightened people. Their fervor, their passion, their fire frightened the very denomination that they were in. Remember, Methodism hadn't been around forever. They were Anglicans. And, and, and the teaching of biblical holiness, uh, well, we're here because it lit a fire that spread around the world. That's what I would love to see as, as you know, the church, we, we, you know, we separate over things and we get into the... the doctrines and debates, and I'm all for those, by the way. I don't think we do enough of those. I think we need to do more, um, and I would love to do more. Please bring me to your church, and I'll be happy to participate in any way possible, but at the end of the day, what, what we're called to is not just making sure we get certain issues right, either theologically or ethically or both, but that we are walking in a sustained, radical responsiveness to grace that consists of not tolerating sin in our lives. And notice I said our lives first. We get to the other sin in other people's lives, and we should get there. Remember, Jesus doesn't end his parable with, um, you know, first take the speck out of your own eye or take the log out of your own eye. He doesn't end it there. The next part of the parable is so that you will then see clearly to help remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, so the idea of, well, Christians, we shouldn't judge, that's not even remotely biblical. Um, 
we should. We just, according to Jesus, shouldn't judge hypocritically. And we shouldn't judge judgmentally. But in all of that, if we're walking, if we're experiencing this perfection to lay us, if we are doing what the author of Hebrews so wants his people to do as our normal Christian life, those are the type of responses that should come naturally or that should flow out of us. It should just be part of who we are. And there should be this grace that, 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 that flows from us. Grace in its fullness, not in our meanings of that English word, love in its fullness, not in our connotations of what English love means, but in its fullness, biblical, full story, Genesis to Revelation. That's what, I think Wesley was close. Like I said, I don't often disagree with him, but this is one of those cases where I wish I could go back and say, John, have you thought about this? Um, but I can't do that because he's dead. You're not, so <laughs> I can come and speak to you today. Anyway, thank you for letting me come and talk. And I, I would love to... We've got to run. I've put cards on the tables. They might have all been taken. My resource ministry, Disciple Dojo, is for equipping churches. So I have teaching DVDs, books, and stuff. I'd love to get those in your hands. And I don't have a table at Cokesbury, so come see me afterwards. Thank you. Things. First of all, isn't that the kind of uh, wisdom, intelligence, biblical faithfulness we need throughout the denomination? Lay people, please put them on your ballot. Clergy, if you've got lay people who aren't here, still vote for them. Second, uh, our servers were very kind to us. They did not come in at all during James Michael's talk. Please reward them well with uh, as you leave your tips on the table. And uh, third, I just want to pray for a good Friday and the commissioning service that's fixing to happen across the street. If you want to pick up JM's books, get more on his website, have him come to your church, I can tell you from personal frequent experience that having him come and teach at your church is a great blessing to spiritual maturity of the people that you are growing there because we uh, have him come to Good Shepherd, well, he already goes there. But we have to come and, and uh, teach large, large classes of Good Shepherd all the time. So, let's pray. God, we do thank you for the, the truth of Hebrews chapter 6, and we thank you for the wisdom you poured into this man, pour wisdom into us. And so I pray you would bless James Michael's ministry, that you would expand his footprint and his influence throughout the congregations and even this denomination. And we ask that you would be pleased with the commissioning service that's going on across the street very, very shortly. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody together said, Amen. Amen. Amen.